Gun control, inflation, and abortion may be at the forefront of talking points for members of Congress recently, but there is work to be done. Coming back from recess, there are funding measures, nominations, and major legislation packages that will need to be dealt with. To give us a preview of what's in store, I spoke with Bloomberg government congressional reporter Zach Cohen. So the Senate's going to come back and basically immediately get to work on a bunch of nominees. They've got a a big backlog of these uh, presidential appointees uh, that haven't gotten Senate confirmation yet. Normally, we would be approved by a simple voice vote, but with Republican opposition, they're going to take these uh, long floor votes that are going to take a couple of hours or days in order to get through. So they're going to start at the Department of Defense and then move on to some more controversial ones. Uh, people like Michael Barr uh, for the Federal Reserve Board of Governors could see votes this week, uh, as well as Steve Dettelbach to lead uh, ATF, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, obviously the big firearms regulator. Um, that agency hasn't had a Senate-confirmed leader in many, many years, um, and as Democrats especially, and Republicans as well, are looking to take steps to stem the gun violence epidemic, uh, this is certainly one nominee that's going to be worth watching. Yeah, inflation and gun issues at the forefront there. Uh, is that going to muddy the waters and, and make these nominee debates take even longer? It could. And so Barr, you'll remember, is, is actually not even uh, President Biden's first choice for this particular pick for the Fed um, his last pick, uh, Sarah Bloom Raskin, the, the wife of Congressman Jamie Raskin, her nomination was tanked because there was sort of bipartisan opposition to her. Um, so Barr uh, was sort of brought in later and it would be the last of these Federal Reserve nominees to come in. And obviously the Fed being particularly critical at this juncture to try to curb inflation, uh, that'll be a, a floor vote worth, worth watching. But Barr has some bipartisan backing, as does uh, Dettelbach for the ATF. While there were no Republican uh, supporters for him in the Judiciary Committee that did actually create additional procedural hurdles for Senate Democrats uh, once it came to the floor uh, for an initial vote to sort of get the nomination out of committee. Senator Susan Collins and Rob Portman got behind him. So I assume that bipartisan support will continue, at least procedurally, and that should help speed things along. The clock, I'm sure, is in the back of appropriator's head of uh, the NDAA and other appropriations bills. Uh, what is on the schedule as far as those go? Yeah, so the uh, Appropriators are hard at work trying to hash out some sort of deal for annual government funding bills. Remember that September 30th is the annual deadline uh, to fund the government if they can't get agreement on all 12 appropriations bills. They'll have to sign some or pass some form of a continuing resolution, a stopgap funding bill, as is pretty typical uh, nowadays. So the House is expected to take up at least uh, their versions of some of this legislation and send it over to the Senate. Um, to sort of basically mark their turf, to basically say, here's where things stand. Um, but the, you know, there'll be larger negotiations between Senate appropriators, Senate leadership, and their counterparts over in the House to try to reach some sort of deal. But especially given the amount of inflation that's happening, Republicans have been looking for more uh, defense spending. And that's also something we're going to see over in the military authorization bill, the National Defense Authorization Act, which is something that lawmakers would also like to get done sometime this year. That's a that's an annual military policy bill uh, that's considered a must pass bill as well. So that critical question of exactly how much defense spending, especially uh, given the ongoing war in Ukraine and Russia, uh, that'll be an issue worth watching as well. So other than the I guess you can call it background stuff or house cleaning that the Congress has to do. What are some of the top line major uh, pieces of legislation that they're still in the works and being implemented, whether they've passed or not, or whether they are still being debated? 
The two big bills that I'm watching are uh, the reconciliation bill, uh, formerly known as Build Back Better. Uh, this was the bill that the, the House had passed last year, a multi-trillion dollar domestic spending agenda, uh, investing in the care economy, climate change, and all of that. That bill was eventually tanked by Senator Joe Manchin at the end of last year. But now Manchin and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer are involved in uh, very closely held negotiations over something that we're hearing is closer to about a trillion dollars. And so that's going to be a much smaller bill, but something that could also happen before September 30th if all 50 Senate Democrats and a majority of the House can agree on some form of a bill that can bypass the filibuster within these narrow budgetary rules. The other bill that's sort of related to this uh, but would pass through regular order if it does pass is known as sort of the China Competition Bill or the Innovation and Competition Act. This is about a quarter trillion dollar bill. Uh, in authorizations, about $52 billion in actual funding for semiconductor manufacturing. Um, and that could have a huge impact on uh, the semiconductor industry, basically the folks that make computer chips that are everything from uh, drones to phones to vacuum cleaners. And so that's a really important industry. And uh, that industry has been looking for this funding for a long time. It's something that Democrats and Republicans have liked, have said they'd like to get done before the August recess. However, there's a lot of sticking points left. And Republicans have said they're not terribly interested in negotiating on that bipartisan deal as long as the partisan reconciliation effort is still underway. So watch to see if those two bills manage to get across the finish line. So it's not so much the bill itself, because usually there is bipartisan efforts to compete economically with China. Uh, It's that they want to focus on the more partisan issues first rather than working on something that Democrats really want. There's certainly a couple of different issues that they have to work out in that, you know, quote unquote, China competition bill. Uh, There's a tax credit that um, people like Senators Ron Wyden and Mike Crapo, the bipartisan duo that head the Senate Finance Committee that they'd like to see included uh, that would help semiconductor companies. But that's something that House Republicans like Kevin Grady, the ranking member on the House Ways and Means Committee, has said that he's opposed to. So there's actually some uh, differences of opinion that are more um, across the two chambers as opposed to across the two parties. Um, there's a bunch of other issues. The, the House Foreign Affairs Committee and the Senate Foreign Relations Committee uh, haven't come to agreements on their particular titles. There's a bunch of different issues that they're trying to work out in these conference negotiations between the House and the Senate, and they don't all fall along very neat Democratic and Republican lines. Zach Cohen is a congressional reporter for Bloomberg News. We talked about gun violence and uh, inflation as two issues that are in the forefront of Congress and the news. But out there is the lingering uh, issue of abortion rights. Uh, Is that going to have any effect on what is going on as the Senate and House try to just get back to business as usual? The House is actually scheduled to vote on two more abortion-related bills. The first is the Women's Health Protection Act. We've seen this bill a couple of different times, but the House is going to vote on it again, that it would essentially codify Roe v. Wade, that landmark decision that the Supreme Court overturned a couple of weeks ago. Um, and that, that would likely pass the House again, but this is also the same measure that Senate Republicans have filibustered in the past. There, uh, there are only two Senate Republicans, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, who identify themselves as supporters of abortion rights, And so it's a pretty high hurdle to get anything to the Senate that would essentially codify the Supreme Court precedent the Supreme Court had overturned. The other bill worth watching, uh, which I believe is new, would essentially prevent any bans on um, women seeking abortions who are crossing state lines in order to do so. Anybody who goes from uh, a state that bans abortion to a state that allows them. uh, This is something that is obviously a real concern. um, And that bill should come up for a, a House vote as well. 
remains to be seen how that might do in the Senate. Zach Cohen is a congressional reporter with Bloomberg Government. Zach, thank you so much for filling us in on what's going on on the Hill. Anytime. Find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village. That was, I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, at, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult, young, 
you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of the Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, You know, from historical to current, uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. A financial plan isn't just about money. It's about what matters most to you, like protecting your family, supporting your community, and building a legacy for future generations. At Northwestern Mutual, we start with a conversation about the life you want to live now and years from now. Whether you're paying down debt, saving for college, or planning for retirement, we have an eye on your bigger picture. Get access to our financial expertise at harlem.nm.com. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, headquartered in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.